welcome. Glad you're with us this morning. We are starting in our new series uh, in Haggai called Rebuild. Haggai is a very short book. It's only two chapters, uh, but we are going to be in it for a couple of weeks. So um, I would encourage you to, to read through that book. Uh, last night as I was falling asleep, my wife looked at me and said, so are we building a church? Is, is that what we're doing? Are you going into 2021? I'm like, actually, no, we're doing the opposite. We're, we're going to sell property. So um, the other thing you guys need to be aware of is that we're going to take our budget vote. Um, the budget is online. It's there for you to view. You can go to the 411. You can go on our service page. You can find the budget and you can find the details. We always give a detail of why we budget the vision for our budget before you see the actual budget. Uh, we encourage you to read that so you understand where our motive is and what we try to strive for uh, in our body and in our church. Um, and then the other thing you'll see on that page is a discussion a little bit touching on the sale of our property, which we called the Chouse because it used to be a ranch home with a big steeple on the end. But then I, we, I, well, we traded the steeple to get the driveway paved. Long story. But anyway, we call it the church house or chouse. And so that property um, we are going to get rid of in 2021. It's been just, it's something that we've been able to use for ministry, but it's just no longer something that we can continue to maintain and use. And it's best for our church um, body as we've looked at it. And we need you to vote on the budget and vote on that. If you have questions about the budget or the church property, that chouse that was given to us that we're now going to sell, and then again, proceeds from that sale we'll give away too, like we always do. Um, if you have any questions, reach out to any of the staff um, before you are ready to vote or ask questions about the budget. We encourage you as a family, we sit down together, we want to talk about it, and next week before we take the vote, we'll kind of go over a little bit more, um, but we encourage you to do that now so that you're not uninformed when we get to, to next week. And so our series in Haggai, though, is talking about God's people rebuilding, okay? And where we find ourselves in the story is like this. Just, just tune in for a second, because this might sound familiar. The God's people have found themselves for the last 70 years, 75 years, defeated because of their stupidity. They've been in 70 years of misery, They've been given multiple second chances and squandered them, yet God is always commanding his people to build in the midst of the difficult circumstances that he puts them in or they find themselves in. They've been enslaved in Babylon for 70 years, and when he sent them to Babylon, he said to plant gardens, to build houses, and to raise up families and give your sons and daughters in marriage, because I'm going to come back. And I want you to prosper and multiply, and I want you to be a blessing to the place I'm exiling you to, to those people that you're under. And then he says, um, the question for us is, will those of us who claim to know God, know his story, know that since Genesis, God has been on a rebuilding plan, will we choose to rebuild what we want our way or what God wants his way? Will we lead others to rebuild God's way or to rebuild our way? And see, through this prophet Haggai, even though it's two chapters long, that's it, God tells his surrendered people, I am with you, I will help you, it is time to rebuild. We couldn't have a better message for ourselves today. Everybody's so happy 2020 is over. I don't know about you, but y'all are still wearing masks. <laughs> it ain't over yet. So what do we do? Do we just keep waiting and waiting and waiting? There's a time to wait. Don't get me wrong. But God calls us and tells us exactly what to do while we wait. He told his people what to do while they waited for his deliverance. And then when he brought them, which we're going to see in a moment too, back to the promised land he had promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, he tells them that this is what you're going to do. This is how you're going to rebuild. And so this morning, what we're going to look at in the first chapter is this. God tells his people very simply to think, to think carefully about your ways. If there's nothing that drives me more nuts, it's to think carefully about my ways sometimes. I just want to get it done. You want to know why I want to get it done? So I can have my way. Because the faster I get it done, 
the faster I got what I'm supposed to get done done, and it's my time. And so I don't want to think carefully about my ways. I don't want to think carefully about how to do it. Oh, no, no, no. I just want it done so I can move on and do what I want to do. And this can so be our heart. And God is telling his people, I need you to think carefully because you are representing me to the world around you. I've chosen you. I have selected you. You have responded to me. And because of that relationship, I'm asking you to think carefully because the world around you is looking for something to build their lives on. They're looking for something that's got a firm foundation and I'm it and I'm sending you out to let people know I'm it. And the thing about the book of Haggai that's really neat, the book of Haggai is one of the few books, one of the few prophets where the people actually repent. Most of the prophets of the Old Testament tell God's people to repent, and they don't, and God has to terribly punish them, terribly discipline them. Haggai is one of the books that's only two chapters long. Maybe it's only two chapters long because the people actually listen. God doesn't have to spend 30 chapters telling them all the things they're doing wrong because they're like, we're ready to listen. Okay, great. I don't have to share because you're, you're actually doing what was already written. You're doing what was said. And that's where we find ourselves today. The question for us today is, will we think carefully about our ways? Will we look to Scripture? Will we look to God? We're not in any new circumstances. There have been pandemics before. There have been economic crises before. There have been nations raised up and torn down before. We are in nothing new that God hasn't seen, done, or put his people through before. And the people that are going around and telling you it's all new, it's unprecedented, just shake your head and be like, no, it's not. Are there some nuances that may be different for us? Absolutely. But God has been consistent throughout history. Look at what it starts out. It says this. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, I love how accurate the Bible is. You'll see this in a second. The Bible's incredibly historically accurate. If God wanted to like just give a message and not be checked on it, he wouldn't put dates and times. He wouldn't put names. He'd be like, God told a man to go do this. At a certain time. No, God is specific. He wants you to look back. And you can actually prove what Haggai's talking about by looking at Babylonian history. You don't even need to look at biblical history. Go back and look at Babylonian history, Persian history, and you'll find the Bible matching up right alongside of it. And he says, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtel, the governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josedach, the high priest. So you've got these two people, Zerubbabel, and you've got Joshua. By the, way, name, by the way, the name Joshua means Yahweh saves, which is pretty cool that these are the two guys that get selected. And so they're called to come back. Now, let me give you a little bit of history. You need to understand this, because when you see the name Darius there, there are actually three different Dariuses during this time period that you need to be aware of. There's the first Darius that's mentioned And he's Darius the Mede, and that is in the book of Daniel, where Darius the Mede is who Daniel talks about. Now, 18 years after him is Darius the Persian becomes king, and that's with Ezra. And Ezra brings in, and there's like 50,000 people that Darius the Persian sends to Jerusalem to rebuild their city. He's friendly to the Jews and says, I need you to go back. I want, I, I want, to, I want to please everybody. I want everybody to get along, so I want you to go back and worship your God. I won't keep you under control like those Babylonians did. We're the nice Persians. We'll send you back. So the people go back. By the way, God told them it would be 70 years from the time he exiled them till the time he goes back. And sure enough, Darius the Persian, also Cyrus is his name, sends back the people exactly 70 years from the time when God said they would be sent back. You have to remember, they were in Babylonian captivity. And God told the Babylonians, if you don't treat my people well, I'm going to overthrow you. And that's exactly what happened. And so that's the second Darius. Then there's a third Darius called Darius the Persian or Darius the Great that Nehemiah mentions. So you've got these people in this story. You've got Zerubbabel. You've got Joshua. You've got Ezra, the book of Ezra. You've got Nehemiah. All this is happening in about the same time frame of about 30, 50 years, right around there. The whole period from the time that Actually, it's about 100 years. From the time that they're sent back, that Cyrus sends back the people, this is a 100-year rebuilding process. 
I don't know about you, but if it took you 100 years to build a house, you might not have a very happy family. A 100-year rebuilding process that God sends his people back, and they're like, yeah, we're going back. God's bringing us back. It's going to be awesome. And then five years goes by. Ten years goes by. Twenty years goes by. Thirty. Fifty. People are dying as this is going on. And finally, after a hundred years, Nehemiah goes the last time to Jerusalem and finishes, and the walls are finished, the gates are put up, and the city's rebuilt. And it's not very long after that that it's all destroyed again. Because of the God's people, their stupidity and their rebellion and their idolatry. Like this. When you look at this story, it is amazing how accurately historic God is making this statement. He's saying, look, I am sending you back. I've got a prophet that's telling you. And then he goes on and he says this. The Lord of hosts says this. The people say the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. So you got to remember, they've been sent back to Jerusalem. It's been maybe a decade, 15 years They thought they were going to go back. It was going to go smooth. God's whistles. We elected the right guy. Now it's all going to happen well. Like this is, oh yeah, the right people. It's going to, woo, here we go. After about a decade or 15 years, they realize it's miserable. God asked them, you ready for this? God asked them to build a temple in a city without any protection. No walls and no gates. That is the stupidest building plan on the face of the planet. When when, when people came to the new world and built forts when they came here, in the 16 and 1700s, the first thing you do is you live in a tent or sleep on the ground while you get the walls of the fort up and get a gate. Then you start building within the walls. You don't build the temple first that's the most valuable thing to you without protection. See, God does. Because God says, I'm the one doing this, not you. My ways are not your ways. I'm asking you to dedicate yourself to the worship of me before you dedicate yourself to your own security and self-preservation. Will you do it? And the people get discouraged. Because guess what? The nations around them come in and attack them and pester them. And when they're trying to bring wood back, they don't let them get the wood out of the mountains to bring back. And it's constantly a fight to try to build this. So they get discouraged and they're like, oh, forget it. We're not going to build this. And they've now come to the place after being there 10 or 15 years. And they were all excited at first. Oh, this is going to be great. And then they hit that wall. You know how often I see this in relationships, marriages, People that go into a church and think, oh, this is the church for me. It's going to be awesome. Then after about five or ten years, they realize these people are just as stupid as I am. This is just as messy as the last. Yeah, because we're people. There's no perfect relationship or perfect church. But we have to question what we're building. And are we going to build what God says? Are we going to go after what we want? And that's exactly what the people do here. Because when you go on to the next part of the story, it says the word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while the house lies in ruins? While my house, God says. Now the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. Think carefully about your ways. You want to make sure you got your paneled house and you're safe and secure and you got your white picket fence and you, you got it all. Are you concerned about what I'm building? Does it consume you on a daily basis what I'm trying to build? Or does it consume you on a daily basis what you want to build? If you aren't consumed with what God wants you to build in your life, and you're not thinking carefully about that, excited about it, finding joy in it, having to fall on your knees to ask God to help you in it, you're building the wrong thing. Doesn't matter, career, house, whatever it is, you're building the wrong thing. And God is saying, you are so consumed with your own lives, you're so happy to be back in the land, and Persia's allowed you to move back, and you're just content to say, well, at least we're in Jerusalem, at least we're in Judea, there's no temple, there's no walls, God is a shame and a sham to the rest of the nations, but you know what, we're doing okay. 
And can I just tell you, there are people that will profit off of this. There were merchants selling to help people build their paneled houses without question. There were spiritual leaders like Joshua, the high priest we just read about, who was saying, oh, that's great. Yeah, you build your houses. We'll figure out a way to help you worship. Don't worry about what God says. Don't worry about what God wants to build. You just do your thing, and, and, and we'll just encourage you. And Haggai comes along and says, no. The Lord of hosts says this has got to stop. Can I just tell you, we find ourselves in such a similar culture. Where people don't want to lay down their lives for the church that God is building. We're going to look at it in a minute when we go to the New Testament. That God is not building a physical temple on earth. He's building a temple of people. And we are to lay our lives down for one another. Is that messy? Absolutely. It's a disaster. It's hard to do. We're all selfish. We question one another. I I get it. We do have to take care of the things God tells us to take care of in our own homes. I get all of that. The question is, what consumes you? Right now, it's easy for us to look at this and say, you know, I've been in captivity seven years. I've been waiting for my time. I've been waiting to get out from under that slavery and be able to have my own little piece of property and my own little house. You know what? I'm done. It's enough time. It's my time now. And you know what? If God wants to build his temple, then he'll bring people in to build his temple. He'll get the right people. But I'm not that guy. It's exactly what Haggai is facing, and it's what we see in our world today. It's exactly what we see all around us today. And we keep trying to get to this place of safety and security that doesn't exist in this world without God's presence. And can I just tell you, where did God's presence reside in the Old Testament? The temple. And we can rebuild and build and and think we're doing it in God's name and be empty inside because we're not seeking his presence. He goes on and he says this, think carefully about your ways. He repeats, or he goes on, he says, "You you have planted much but harvested little. You eat but never have enough to be satisfied. You drink but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts his wages into a bag with a hole in it. Welcome to America. Welcome to all the complaints and riots and protests in the streets. Because this is what they're saying. They are saying, I've planted, but I don't get anything for it. And those rich do and I don't. And can I just tell you, when Jesus Christ came to the earth, you know what he said? He said this. Jesus shared the hope about who he was, and he called himself Lord. And the word Darius means Lord, by the way. That's why there were three Dariuses. It wasn't a name, it was a title. Darius means Lord. Jesus called himself the Lord. Jesus said he was the Lord of the what? Harvest. You've planted, harvested little. That's because I'm the Lord of the harvest. You don't have enough to eat. Jesus said, I'm the bread of life. You drink but never have enough because I'm the living water and you keep searching for something else to fill you up. You put on clothes but never have enough to get warm and I'm the one who clothes the lilies of the field. I'm the one that gives you and clothes you in righteousness that we looked at in Romans. The wage earner puts his wage into a bag, but it has a hole in it. And Jesus says, I'm going to give you eternal rewards, eternal treasures that moth and rust will not destroy. Jesus is the absolute answer to all of what the people are struggling with when God looks at them and says, you say, God, what's in it for me? And Jesus and God himself is saying, I'm in it. It's not about the goodies I can give you. It's about me. It's about a relationship. And if you want the goodies, there may not come on this side of eternity. It may only be on the other side of the eternity that you get any goodies. Is it worth it? Is it worth to build your life on that? Jesus did. The early church did. The apostles did. He goes on and he says this. The Lord of hosts says this, that's the Lord of armies. Remember, they're being attacked and they're struggling to rebuild. And he uses the phrase, the Lord of hosts, which means those armies you think that are keeping you from having the life you want, those authorities that are keeping you from having the life you want, they're not in charge. The Lord is the Lord of his armies. And you say, well, where is his armies? 
He's waiting, because when he brings his armies, it's not gonna be good for anybody, including you. And he's patient that none would perish, but that all of us would have the chance to repent, the Bible says. So he says, think carefully about your ways. He repeats himself. I don't know about you, but whenever God repeats himself, you should probably listen. (laughs) Just like when your boss or your wife or your husband or, or whoever repeats themselves, it's because they want you to think about it again. And he says, Think carefully. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. God, I don't think you understand. There are armies. We try to go up into the hills, and they run us off. Then we cut down trees. We do all that work. We bring it back, and then they just steal our trees. I know. Do it anyway. You're representing me. Trust me. Step out. But but God, you don't understand, the circumstances aren't working out the way I want them to work out. I I told you that that might happen. And God says, go do it. In other words, don't wait until the circumstances are right and I bring my armies and squash all all the, the armies and then it's like, oh look, a clear path to the mountain to get my wood. God's like, nope. Go with armies on either side and trust me that I'm in control regardless of the results. That is the story of scripture. And we live in a world where everyone's telling us to look at our circumstances to get our blessing. That we are to look at at everything that's going on and try to make sense of it instead of just looking at God, looking at what he says to think carefully about and saying, I'm gonna fix my eyes on that. If God told me to go get wood, I'm going to get wood. I'm not going to think about the armies and everything. I'm going to do what he's asked me to do. That doesn't mean I'm going to be stupid and go out without protection or a blindfold on. If you're going to cut down wood, it means you're carrying something to cut it with. You got a weapon. (laughs) Like, he looks and he says, then I will be pleased. See, we keep trying to get the pleasure of God. We look at God and say, God, why? I feel like you don't love me. I don't feel like I'm saved. And God is looking and saying, it's because... You keep waiting for the circumstances to be right. You keep waiting for me to do some kind of miracle to prove myself in your life. You keep testing me instead of you saying, you know what, I'm not God, they're not God, they're not God, you must be, I surrender. You've proved yourself worthy for so long. You have to remember, these people that are fighting this are people that had spent 70 years in slavery and they're watching every prophecy come true that God laid out through the prophet Jeremiah specifically. They're watching these things actually happen and and it doesn't matter to them. You see, God has a plan for how he wants to build and what he wants to build. And if you're going to find joy, if you're going to find pleasure, you've got to build what he wants, his way. And if you don't, you're going to be miserable. I promise. I've tried it. It's misery. And you think, yeah, but it seems like people in the Bible had some misery too. Do you realize everybody's miserable? Like there are people that look really happy. But if you really dig long enough or give them enough time, they'll be miserable too. Misery is our earth. It's our world. It's what it is. The question is, what do we do with it? I don't find my joy in my circumstances. I find my joy in the person of God who tells me what my circumstances are like. And look at this. God goes on because he actually explains the circumstances. He says, here's the problem. You expected much, but it amounted to little. You had all these expectations of what was going to happen when you invited me back into your life. When you invited me to, when when I sent you to Persia, you had all these expectations. We're going to march in. We're going to rebuild the temple in five days. It's going to be amazing. And did I tell you to have those expectations? Did, Did I tell you that that's what I wanted you to do? Where do these expectations come from? Most of the time, they come from our hearts looking at circumstances, looking around, saying, well, they have a temple, they have it, they have it, they have, well, then I'll get it. He goes on and he says, look, when you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Well, that's not a God I want to follow. I worked really hard, brought the harvest to my house, and I ruined it. The reason he ruined it is because they were supposed to do, the the first thing they were supposed to do with the harvest was to take it where? In the Old Testament. To the Lord's house, the tent. 
was his. Instead, they took it to their house. And God ruined it. You say, well, that's mean. No, it's loving. Because, see, God doesn't want sin and selfishness and misery to continue in the world. He wants people to see that he is God, that he's in control. And the way we live, simply live our lives, simply build one stone on top of another in our life, represents to the world who God is and that he really is who he says he is. Then he says, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. I don't know about you, but I read this, and this was convicting to me. (laughs) How often am I so busy with my own life, my own thoughts, my own house, that I'm not thinking about God's house, his ways, what he's trying to build. I'm not even wrestling with it. I just assume that if I'm healthy, if I got money, then 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 I'm good. God's happy with me, because he's obviously done Before they went into slavery, they were happy. They had just made a great treaty with Egypt, their mortal enemy from Exodus, which they weren't supposed to do. Babylon had come to seize their property and seize everything, and Egypt attacked them, and Babylon left. And for a little while, the people thought, oh, God is really happy with us. And then when Nebuchadnezzar defeated Egypt and came back and found the treaty that they should not have signed, he completely decimated and destroyed what they had built. And God told him it would happen. And it's not because he doesn't love us. It's because he won't settle for anything less than his glory. Because he knows that if he does, we'll use it for our own selfish benefit. We'll use each other. And that's all we'll do. The thing you have to realize is that God in the New Testament changes where the temple is. See, the temple moved from the temple in Jerusalem to the human heart. When Jesus was crucified on the cross, the veil of the temple that kept the holy of holies, the presence of God out, ripped in half to declare to the world, I am here. My presence is now with men. Pentecost, which we will look to celebrate in about five months, and the feast of first fruits. That is a representation of God's spirit, the Holy Spirit indwelling the hearts of men instead of being in a, in a building. God said he moved the temple, which we'll look at in a moment. Haggai goes on and he says this, so on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, the new wine, olive oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and beast, and all that your hand hands produce. We look around and go, why is this happening? Can we, can we agree for a minute that when you pause to compare our nation and our world to the righteousness of God in Scripture, it's a miracle God hasn't destroyed us all. Me included. It is only God's mercy that he only takes away a few trinkets to try to get our attention. He just doesn't smite us and kill us and make a new one of us, right? Like my dad used to say all the time, he's like, son, you were one of 10 kids. Five of you I let survive. And I can get rid of you and just make another one. He he always said that jokingly, but it was also true. (laughs) Like, It's the sense that I'm not the boss, that there is a Lord who's in charge, who who I listen to and I think about carefully. And it's his mercy and grace on me because I deserve way, way worse than just not having some money in the bank and not having some food in my pantry. I deserve death for the wickedness of my heart and the wickedness of the world that I live in. And if God gives me anything less than that, that is amazing. And yet God says, I want to give you even more. I don't want to just not do mean things or what we determine mean things to you. I actually want to bless you. He goes on. I love this. This is huge. Mark this in your Bible. This doesn't happen very often in the Old Testament. This is one of those moments. Circle it, mark it, be like, wow, this actually happened. Says, then Zerubbabel, son of Shelatau, the high priest, Joshua, son of Zehozadak, and the entire remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and 
the words of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him. They believed Haggai was the messenger of God. They believed his message where all the prophets before, they wouldn't believe him. They denied their message. They fought them because they said, our God wants us to have all this stuff. He won't tear down his temple because he wants us to have a nice temple. He will. Zerubbabel and Joshua go, we're leading in repentance. We will lead the people to say, we deserve this. We'll lead the people to cry out. And we and our families will lead the way to the mountain for the wood. We'll do it. And let me just tell you, the temple they're getting ready to rebuild you'll see at the end of the book, is really sad. See, there, this temple of Solomon, the, the, the walls were lined with gold. There were precious gems. David had saved his whole life to give Solomon all of the wealth, and then Solomon was the wealth, one of the wealthiest men ever to exist on the planet. And when he built the temple, it was this thing that was one of the seven wonders of the world. They're getting ready to build a temple that has no protection, no walls. They can't put gold in it. If they put gold in it, it's just going to be stolen. Not to mention they're poor. They can't build what they want. They can't build back to the majesty of Solomon. And God says, that's okay, build anyway. Because you're not building to, to, to make a big show. You're building to show me your heart. It's a heart relationship, not a thing goes on and he says this so the people feared the Lord don't skip that because after the people feared the Lord Haggai the Lord's messenger delivered the Lord's message to the people I am with you this is the Lord's declaration that term I am with you is the same term Jesus used and it represents tabernacles the Feast of Tabernacles where they would go out, Feast of Booze, and they would go out and they would bring in the harvest and they would make this temporary booth, this temporary temple that they would go out, they'd cut a hole in it, and they would eat their meals outside as a family as a representation that someday God would come down from heaven and eat with us. He'll restore the world. He'll restore what was broken in Genesis. So when Haggai says, I am with you, it is God wants to fulfill tabernacles with you. He wants to to be present with you. Yes, he's, he's disciplined you. He's kept you from things that you think you should have. But he's saying at this moment, I am telling you, I want to be with you. And since you have feared me, since you have said, I fear you more than I fear the armies. I fear you more than my bank account. I fear you more than my wife or my husband or my kids. I fear you more than my career. Because I fear you, God says, man, that's the kind of person that you can know I'll be with you. I'm with you. He doesn't say I might be with you. He says, nope, if you fear me, I am there. I am with you. That is a beautiful, beautiful promise. He goes on and it says, then the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel. That's what he does for us. We come to know Christ. We surrender. We make him Lord. And God puts his Holy Spirit in us, stirs us up for what he wants us to build. And the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shelatel, governor of Judah, the spirit of the high priest Joshua, son of Jehozadak, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, that's the 50,000 that came back from Jerusalem, they began work on the house of Yahweh of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. I wonder if it will be said of our church, if it will be said of God's people, that on the year of 2021, of January 3rd, that God stirred up his people. He stirred them up. And they said, we will rebuild. Not America, not something that, that's going to fall away. We're going to rebuild what God wants. We're going to rebuild our relationship with him. We're going to make him the center of our lives. Look at what Jesus said in John 2. He said, the Jewish Passover was near, so Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Just like the remnant went to Jerusalem that were sent back. In the temple complex, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. In other words, there was abundance. After making a whip of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple complex with their sheep and oxen. He poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables. Whoa! 
Can you imagine being one of the disciples? I've told this story before when we preached through John, but can you imagine going to the temple with Jesus? You're celebrating Passover. You've done this your whole life. Your whole life as a good Jewish boy, you go celebrate Passover. You've gone with Jesus multiple times. You're going to Passover, and Jesus is sitting over in the corner. It'd be like right now if like Daryl's back there in the church service, and he's just making something. People are walking in, walking by, and Daryl's just weaving together. It's just getting longer and longer and longer, and you're like, is that a, is he making a rope? Where's he, where's he going to climb to? What, that looks like a whip. He's putting little shards on the end of his rope. That's not a rope. What? Why is he making a whip in the middle of the church service? And then you think, well, I'll keep an eye on him. And sure enough, he just pops up. And he's like, hey, everybody. And he starts whipping all of us out the side door, takes the box and throws it over and says, you guys, you guys aren't building what God wants here. That's what Jesus does. And this is the third temple that was built by Herod. And it was a beautiful temple. Not as great as Solomon's, but way better than the one Ezra built. And he says, look at this. He told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Can I tell you, the church today has never been more of a marketplace than it has in human history. Everything Christian marketed. Everything. And it doesn't make us any more sold out for God. It goes on and it says this. And his disciples remembered what was written. They remember prophecy. Zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign of authority will you show us for doing these things? What in the world made you think you could make a whip and get us, like whip us out of here and turn over the money? Jesus answered, destroy this temple, this sanctuary, and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore the Jews said, this sanctuary took 46 years to build, and you'll raise it up in three days? But Jesus was speaking about the sanctuary of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Jesus moved the temple from the physical building to I am the new temple, and anybody that is in me, I will be in him, and you are becoming a temple, the temple of your heart. In Matthew, Jesus said to them, have you not read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This came from the Lord and is wonderful in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a nation producing its fruit that will build what I asked them to build, that will do what I've asked them to do. Whoever falls on, these stone, on this stone will be broken to pieces, but, whoever, whoever it fall, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. In other words, God made man out of dust. God says, if you will die, if you will lay down your life, if you'll recognize that you're only dust, I will rebuild you. I will rebuild your life. But you have to let me do it. He goes on and he says this. As some were talking about the temple complex in Luke 21 with Jesus, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to God, Jesus said, these things that you see, the days will come will not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. By the way, the temple still lies in ruins in Jerusalem 2,000 years later. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? We always want a sign. Why do we want a sign? Because we want to know the circumstances so that I can kind of live my life. And then when I see the circumstances coming, I can quickly repent and, and get ready. Right? Then he said, watch out that you're not deceived. For many will come in my name saying, I am he. And the time is near. Do not follow them. Don't follow them. Whenever you hear of wars and rebellions, don't be alarmed. But I thought I'm supposed to be really alarmed. We're losing our country. No, don't be alarmed. These things must take place first, but then the end won't come right away. So wait, these things are happening, but then they really don't matter because that still may not be the end. No. Then he goes on, he says, then he told them, nation will be raised up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be violent earthquakes and famines and plagues in various places. And there will be terrifying sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you. 
They will hand you over to the synagogue and prisons, and you will be brought before the kings and governors because of my name. It will lead to an opportunity for you to witness. I, I don't want to witness. I just want to live in a nice paneled house. I want people to leave me alone. I don't want, to, I don't want this. God's like, that's what I'm building. You live in a world that's at war. He goes on and says, therefore, produce fruit consistent with repentance. And don't start saying to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that God is able to raise up children for Abraham from these stones. He goes on and he says this in 1 Corinthians. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple, a sanctuary of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Think carefully about your ways. You yourselves, Paul says, are our letter written on our hearts, recognized and read by everyone. It is clear that you are Christ's letter produced by us, not written with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on stone tablets, but on tablets that are the hearts of flesh. It's not about the stone building anymore. It's not about the Ten Commandments. It's about the heart that looks and says, God, I'm waiting for your commands. I'm waiting for your temple. And I recognize that I'm going to live for you while I wait. Ezekiel prophesied this. Ezekiel the prophet said, and I will give them one heart and I will put a new spirit within them. I will remove their heart of stone from their bodies and give them a heart of flesh so they may follow my statutes, keep my ordinances and practice them. Do you even know what the statutes, ordinances and practices of God are? Have you read through your Bible to even wrestle with them? It goes on, it says, then they will be my people and I will be their God. Then they'll know I'm with them when they respond to me. But as for those whose hearts pursue their desire for detestable things and practices, I will bring their actions down on their own heads. In other words, I don't even have to do much. Just their actions will take care of themselves eventually. And then he says, this is the declaration of the Lord God. Ezekiel says, I will honor, God says, I will honor the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. The nations will know that I am Yahweh. That's exactly what Haggai said. I am with you. I am Yahweh, the declaration of the Lord God. When I demonstrate my holiness through you in their sight. It's not about, look at my big temple. It's about demonstrating that the temple represents what I do with my heart, what I do with my hands, what I think about, what I do with my body. It determines my calendar, it determines my time, talent, treasure, and my stories that I tell. Some of the greatest stories the people of God would have had in the Old Testament would have been traveling with their family every year to the temple. Remember last year when we went, Bob fell in a hole, we had to put him on a stretcher and carry him? That was funny. Like, those would have been the stories you would have told. Like, you would have seen people as you traveled. It was, it was a community celebration. That's exactly what God is saying. And he says, for I will take you from the nations. That's us. We weren't of Abraham. Most of us in here are not Jewish in our heritage. He says, I can take the nations like us. I will take you and gather you from all the countries. I will bring you into your own land. And I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. God says, I want you to know that I love you, that I clean you, that I care for you. And I don't want anything detestable to be in your life. That's how much I care for you and care for other people. And Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart. I will give you a new spirit within you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes. And look at this, carefully observe my ordinances. In other words, to do my ways. Then you will live in the land that I gave your fathers. You will be my people and I will be your God without question. You see, we're still waiting for that day. We're in the already but not yet. We're still waiting for Jesus who through the temple of his body died and came back to life, allowed the temple to be destroyed because someday he's going to come back and he's going to dwell with us directly again. 
And we are going to travel to Jerusalem and his presence will be there. The gates will be open because there's no reason to have them closed anymore. And we will worship with our God, the Bible says. But we wait. The question is, what will we build as we wait? That's the same question Haggai had for the people of his day. What will you build as you wait for God to be the Lord of armies, to do what only he can do? Will you step out in faith? Or will you look at God and say, until you put the circumstances where I want them, I'm out. And if that's your heart, Jesus said it's a wicked and adulterous generation or person that demands a sign from God. He's already given all he needs to show. He even gave his own son for sinners like you and I. Last passage, 2 Peter 2 says this. As we think carefully about our ways, he says, so rid yourself of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, all slander. Look at the imagery here in verse two. Like newborn infants, desire the pure spiritual milk so that you may grow by it for your salvation. You understand that longing for the pure things of God, that that's what grows you, that's what gives you confidence in God saving you, that he's gonna come back, he's gonna save the world. That's what gives you the confidence. And then he says this, look at this. He says, since you have tasted that the Lord is good. Let me ask you, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Are you still having expectations and demands of God that you need to do this and you need to do that and you look at the world around you and say, well, they got a paneled house and they got that and they got that and they got that. He goes on, he says, come to him. That's you and me. We are to come to him a living stone, rejected by men, but chosen and valuable to God. You yourselves as living stones are being built into a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, which means Yahweh who saves, who is our Messiah. Guys, we're going into 2021 and everybody's telling us all these things we need to do. Can I just encourage you, go to God's word. He has been faithful for thousands of years. He has warned us. He's told us that the world we live in was going to be this way. There were going to be pandemics and wars and problems. He told us that we're going to put money in a bag. It's going to fall through. He has told us all of these things. And every time they happen, we act like he's the worst person in the world. And God's like, think carefully about your ways. I've told you exactly what this looks like. Think about what you're going to do in the midst of whatever circumstances you're in. If you're blessed, how are you going to be a blessing? If you, if you don't have earthly blessings, how are you going to ask God and wait for him to bless? Like, that's what we're called to. And Second Peter, Peter says, look, God is no longer building a stone house in Jerusalem. He's taking you and you and you and me. And he's saying, you guys have got to build on the cornerstone, which is Jesus Christ, the foundation of our faith. And on that chief cornerstone, you are going to build your lives. And there's going to be stalls. There's going to be problems. There's going to be wars. There's going to be armies. You got to keep building. It's worth it. And we go after other people's lives to tell them, you don't have to be a shattered stone with no purpose. You can be crushed and the potter can take that dust and reform you into something that fits perfectly for his design. And then you can think carefully about who God is and what he's done in your life. If you don't know the God that Zerubbabel and Joshua repented to, can I just encourage you to hear the word of Haggai, the word of the Lord, to hear the word of Jesus and Paul and Peter this morning and just say, I want to rebuild with you. I want to rebuild on you. I'm tired of building things that don't last. I want to build your things. Help me. Teach me. 
That's God's message for us. It's been his message from the beginning of the fall of Eden forward. The question is, what will our response be? Will we ignore it? Or will we like this moment in Scripture where the people say, God, I surrender. We'll do what you want. And sometimes doing what you want, doing what he wants, is just simply doing simple things like going and getting wood. Living on a budget, trusting him, caring for others. When you, like, that's all it is. And you wait. A hundred years it took for them to rebuild the city. A hundred years. None of us will probably live that long. So the people that started building never saw it finished. But they trusted that God would finish it. That's my prayer for you, that you will surrender to him, that he is Yahweh who saves, Jesus, who is your Messiah, your Savior. And when you do that, I pray that you'll have the confidence to know that he will help you think about your ways, and he will come in and he will fill you with his spirit, and he gives us the body of Christ where his Holy Spirit no longer resides in a building. It resides in your heart, in your heart, and in my heart if we're surrendered to God. That's where the Holy Spirit is. So when we come together, we connect and we walk with God. Let's pray. Father, thank you this morning for your word. Lord, I thank you for this little book, Haggai, that is only two chapters long, but the reality of this book is that it shows the repentance of people who understand and have allowed you to penetrate their heart, to take their heart of stone and make a heart of flesh. And Lord, I know that there are people listening today. I know there are people in this room that have a heart of stone right now. And they need you to to crush that heart and give them a new heart and bring a new spirit if they haven't done that already. Or there are people in this room who need to long for the pure spiritual milk of your word like a newborn infant longing to be fed by you. Lord, I pray that if anyone listening has not surrendered their life to you, that this will be the moment just like Zerubbabel, just like Joshua led their people to surrender. And Lord, I pray that we'd be patient with that. Because surrendering to you doesn't mean that all our circumstances are going to get fixed on this side of eternity right now. It just means that we now have a purpose and understanding for why the circumstances are happening. And then we can help people walk toward you in them. Lord, I thank you for this body of believers. I thank you for how they've provided for one another, how they've provided for my family and for the families of the staff in our church, how they've provided for our community and sharing your gospel and serving others. They've provided in this space. And they've provided spiritual protection and prayers for your people. Lord, I pray that you would change us, help us to to build and rebuild in 2021 in a way that gives you all the glory and honor surrendered to you, confident to know that you'll help us think about your ways and that you will be with us. Amen.